0: On a sweltering August day, August 26, 1920, to be exact, Carrie Chapman Catt was in her office in New York when the phone rang. The secretary has signed the proclamation. This is how she learned the news, as quietly as that. Suffragist Maud Wood Park would later write. She was with Catt to witness what many considered the final step in the women's suffrage fight that had lasted over 70 years. And it was a phone call. Park wrote, we were all too stunned to make any comment. Of course, the Secretary of State was merely confirming what the suffragists already knew. The state of Tennessee had ratified the 19th Amendment or the Anthony Amendment, as many were calling it by that time. And with that, They had enough states to make sure that the Anthony Amendment was adopted into the U.S. Constitution. The country would never be the same again. The 19th Amendment officially eliminated sex as a barrier to voting, and it expanded voting rights to more people than any other single change in American history. But in the end, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment didn't completely reflect Susan B. Anthony's convictions about a citizen's right to vote. Because again, it just says what states can't do. It protects women from sex discrimination in voting. It doesn't make sure that all citizens can vote. So if you feel like the women's suffrage story ending in a phone call is not the ending you were hoping for, might we suggest that the story is in fact not over? This is, and nothing less, Episode 7, Failure is Impossible. I'm Retta.
1: And I'm Rosario Dawson. So now what? Imagine spending your whole life fighting for something, and then you get it. What now? If you're a suffragist in August of 1920, it's hard to imagine what celebration looks and feels like because you've just won a battle. And battles are bloody. But winning the battle doesn't mean you've won the war. Let's remember one of our big myths from episode two, that this fight was only about the vote. You also had rights for the poor, immigration rights, labor laws, marital rights. It goes on and on. With sex eliminated as a barrier to voting, let's see. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act was a huge achievement to protect women from workplace discrimination. Mm, but we'd have to wait until 1964 for that. And the first woman was finally appointed to the United States Supreme Court. But not until 1981. Battles in a war that has lasted for generations. But let's go back to that fall of 1920. It was a presidential election year with a whole new set of Americans legally able to vote. That
0: sounds like a lot of change.
1: <laughs> yes. But you have to remember that, by this point, 15 states had already granted women full suffrage, so women weren't exactly entering the polls in one fell swoop. That said, big promises were made all around. Suffragists promised voters that women would clean up dirty politics with progressive reforms, and anti-suffragists promised voters that dirty politics would compromise women's morality.
2: Many suffragists argued for women's right to vote on the basis that women would do good things, would have a good impact on the nation, particularly
1: by sort of cleaning up things. Christy Anderson is a political scientist and the author of After Suffrage.
2: The notion was very common that women were quite different than men. They had different interests. They they would act according to the public good. They would help children and protect the vulnerable.
1: So I think there was the anticipation that that would happen and kind of excitement about it. In the end, Republican Senator Warren G. Harding of Ohio defeated Democratic Governor James Cox, also of Ohio, in that 1920 November election. Democratic President Woodrow Wilson had privately hoped for a third term, which was still a thing back then. But party leaders were unwilling to renominate the ailing and unpopular incumbent. The
2: 1920 election itself was pretty much a foregone conclusion. People were really tired of the war. They were not very positive about Wilson at that point, the wartime president. They wanted to get back to normalcy. There was a post-war recession, and what the Republicans campaigned on essentially was... It's a return to normalcy. Thank God the bad stuff is over. Let's get back to normal. I still think women were generally excited to vote in that election. So how many women voted? Well, Anderson says
1: that's hard to answer.
2: One part of the answer is we don't know, really, because unlike today, where we know down to very small details who voted because of exit polls and surveys, there were no surveys. Voting places didn't keep count of how many men or how many women voted, certainly the number of people voting went up between 1916 and 1920, I think from 18 and a half million to 26, almost 27 million people. If you looked at the just the 1920 election, it wasn't magically a lever was not pulled that allowed all women to vote. and f- there were four or five southern states, I think Arkansas, georgia mississippi and alabama or south carolina which really didn't allow women to vote at all the amendment wasn't ratified until august and some states had prior registration deadlines so you already had to be registered and they didn't they refused to change those for women so basically women couldn't vote in the presidential election in those states and in many other localities the election officials made it difficult or refused to make it easier for women to vote, to register, to get to the polls, and so forth. So it would have been hard to imagine that there would be a huge turnout among women in that particular election. Full
0: suffrage did expand opportunities for women to run for office, though this wasn't necessarily something suffragists included in their platform. The suffragists
2: mostly did not talk about women being able to run for office as a possible result of suffrage. I mean, that I think they felt strategically wouldn't go over well, you know, that, okay, give the women a right to vote, but we don't want them running things. And so that was
0: not really talked about. You did see women in elected office before the 19th Amendment, but after the numbers jumped. Between 1920 and 1923, at least 22 women became elected mayors of small towns in places like Red Cloud, Nebraska, and Duluth, Georgia. Bertha Landis became the first big city mayor of Seattle in 1926. In Yonkala, Oregon, the entire city council was replaced by women backed by the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Even some anti-suffs ended up entering politics after ratification. Some women voted, and some ran for office. Elizabeth Lowell Putnam was both the Vice President of the Republican Club of Massachusetts and first woman elected President of the Massachusetts Electoral College. Throughout the 1920s, states like New Mexico, New York, Kentucky, and Indiana saw women elected to their offices of Secretary of State and Treasurer.
2: I found it really interesting to look at press coverage in the 20s as this started to happen, as women were elected more frequently to state legislatures and then to Congress and then to the Senate, how they were described, what the fears were, what their perceptions were of how they were treated. I think that much of the press coverage was, in a way, trying to reassure readers. There was one about... I think it was Florence Knapp, who was the secretary of state for New York elected. There was a newspaper article about her first appearance in front of the state assembly in New York. And they they said something like, She was a vision in, you know, lavender dress, and her voice was carefully modulated and feminine. But she was standing up in front of the predominantly male, maybe all-male, state assembly. So here she is in this position, but don't worry, she's still womanly and still wearing a nice
0: dress and still speaking softly. Whether or not it was feminine, women on every side of the aisle were also flexing their political muscle when it came to policy. There were a lot of
2: hoped-for reforms, you know, regarding child labor and minimum wage and uh, slum improvement and education. But one of the issues, was one of the big kind of stumbling blocks, was the debate among activist women as to whether they should pursue these goals that lots of women shared these kind of progressive goals as a block of women coming in to the electorate or
0: through the parties, which is how things have always happened. This debate was on display at one of the last meetings of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. This group rebrands itself as the League of Women Voters. There were
2: people like Carrie chapman catt who said, politics takes place and policy is made by the political parties. And if we're going to have any power and we're going to get things done that we want to get done, we have to work through the political parties. Not only, but certainly we have to work through the parties. Other people, Maud Wood Park, for example, who was the first president of the League of Women Voters, really thought that the League could take the lead in pulling together women, Republicans or Democrats, because... They all agreed, more or less, on some of these policy changes that they thought should be made, and they should not necessarily stand outside the parties, but that women should put their energies into this women's movement, essentially, rather than work through the parties.
0: One example of this block strategy was the formation of the Women's Joint Congressional Committee, or the WJCC. Twenty organizations banded together, including the League of Women Voters, the National Women's Trade Union League, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And their first legislative win in 1921 was called the Shepherd-Towner Maternity and Infancy Act. It provided funds to states for maternal and child health clinics
1: to address the appallingly high mortality rates at the time. For the most part, though, the power of a women's voting bloc did not appear overnight, as some had predicted, if it ever appeared at all. In the early 1920s, women helped to only slightly increase overall voter turnout. And, according to historians, they rarely flipped elections in these early days. The League of Women Voters needed to start a Get Out the Vote campaign as early as 1924, a mission that would continue for years to come.
0: And at this point, we have to ask ourselves about the women who didn't vote and why. That's coming up on And Nothing Less.
1: You know, we're having a lot of conversations about this as women's history, but I can't get over the fact that ultimately it was men who had much of the power to control the 19th Amendment's destiny. Women campaigned and organized, and some even exercised the right to vote depending on where they lived. But men were mostly in charge at the state and federal level and would have the final say-so on the amendment.
0: But there's one exception. We need to talk about Jeanette Rankin. She was the one and only woman to ever cast the
1: ballot as a legislator in support of the 19th Amendment. That's right. In 1917, she was a congresswoman representing Montana in the House. And listen to what she said. If I am remembered for no other act, I want to be remembered as the only woman who ever voted to give women the right to vote. What a woman. But she should be remembered for more.
0: Jeanette Rankin was born in Montana before it became a state and initially thought she'd study biology. But while traveling East, she saw how women and children were living in urban
1: slums and her life's mission changed. She ended up studying at what would later become Columbia University's School of Social Work. And she traveled even further West to Washington State to work at an orphanage. But Rankin was frustrated by working on one case at a time. She wanted bigger change. The suffrage movement offered her answers.
0: Votes for women meant social reform. It meant laws to improve the lives of children and families. And while Rankin was living in Washington, it became the fifth state in
1: which women won the right to vote. Rankin returned to Montana inspired and ready to work. And pretty soon, a group called the Equal Franchise Society asked her to address the Montana legislature. Now, this was a big deal. A woman in the state capitol. So they needed to get their act together.
0: You mean, like, put their adult magazines away, or what?
1: (laughs) You're not far off. The legislators were told that day they couldn't use foul language. Smoking was banned. And spittoons were removed from the room. Rankin was welcomed with a bouquet of violets.
0: I don't actually hate that part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But despite being so accommodating to Rankin, and despite her passionate speech, Montana women didn't win the right to vote for another three years. But that paved the way for Rankin's successful run for Congress. And while she was in office, she not only got to vote for the 19th Amendment, she stood behind her pacifist beliefs and voted against World War I. She did this again over 20 years later when she was back in Congress and voted against World War II. She was the only representative to cast a nay vote against both World War I and World War II. As she later told a friend, I have nothing left, except my integrity.
0: We've made it to the 1920s, Woo-hoo! victory! Let's read some of the headlines. Is women's suffrage a failure? Ooh, okay, well, that wasn't a great one. where's that from? Good housekeeping. 1924.
1: Okay, well, this is from Harper's in 1925. Are women a failure in politics?
0: Oh, man. Come on, guys.
1: Okay, well, you and I know headlines exaggerate, but we have established that women weren't exactly turning out in droves to vote after the 19th Amendment was ratified. Christy Anderson said it's hard to know exactly what was happening state by state because voting records were kept so differently. In their book, Counting Women's Ballots, J. Kevin Corder and Christina Walbrecht use a sample size of 10 states from 1920 to estimate that just 36% of eligible women turned out to vote in 1920, compared with 68% of eligible men. So now our question is, why? Right. Is this a question of gender or sex at all?
0: Is a better question, could all women vote even if they wanted to?
1: Well, let's see if we can answer that. By now, we know that states control voting. Even after the Anthony Amendment is ratified, states have the ability to set voting restrictions. In some cases, really extreme restrictions. Remember that after the 19th Amendment was certified in August 1920, some states' voter registration deadlines had passed, and they refused to reopen registration for newly enfranchised women. Also, by the end of the 1920s, All of the Southern states, plus 12 more outside of the South, required literacy or educational tests before you could vote, not to mention poll taxes. These intentional roadblocks were a blow to Black voters, as well as new English speakers, poor Americans, and Native Americans. It was also hard on women. Then there was the
0: factor of citizenship, which marriage often complicated and immigration always complicated.
1: You mentioned marriage, Retta. You're gonna love this fact. In the early 1900s, if you were married to a man who wasn't an American citizen, you lost your citizenship and your right to vote. (laughs) I mean, the fun
0: never stopped. And for Native Americans, citizenship was even more complicated. Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act in 1924, but many Native people would reject something they never asked for, In other words, they didn't want to be forced to become citizens of the U.S. if it meant they had to
1: abandon and disown their culture or land. And for women like Zidkala Saab, the Lakota, who did want to vote in U.S. elections, there were often additional barriers to the polls. While the Citizenship Act of 1924 granted, you guessed it, citizenship to Native Americans, it didn't guarantee Indigenous people the right to vote. That
0: decision stayed with the states, and that never violated the 19th Amendment. So Zitkala Sa formed the National Council of American Indians in 1926, working to unite tribes across the U.S. to fight for the rights to vote for all
1: Native Americans. She believed that Native Americans, as the original occupants of the land, needed to be represented in the current system of government. She ran voter registration drives, partnered with the General Federation of Women's Clubs, and lobbied for legislation that she felt would benefit Native people.
0: Then you have Asian-born Americans, whose citizenship and right to vote were denied through a series of laws for over a hundred years. This changed with the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943 and the passage of the McCarran-Walter Act
1: in 1952. And perhaps no group of Americans have been more shut out of voting than African Americans. Here's historian Martha Jones. What we see
3: after 1920 is that some American women win the the right to vote with the Nineteenth Amendment, and many women do not. African American women in northern and western states will win the vote in 1920 and will go to the polls, become part of Republican Party politics with enthusiasm, with gusto, and um, very much become part of political machines and influence elections. They'll run for office even, and at the same time in those Southern states where Black men have long now been disenfranchised by 1920, Black women will become equal to their male counterparts, equal in the sense that they too will be kept from the polls
1: by poll taxes and literacy tests. In 1920, some Black women did manage to register to vote in the South, despite attempts to bar them. They fell through the cracks, you could say. But within a few years, that would get squashed. They were systematically subjected to the same tactics that Black men had been for decades. One tactic was white people first registration, leaving African-Americans to wait for hours. Another was forcing registrants to read passages from the constitution before being allowed to vote. Or worse, they were blocked from the polls by outright intimidation or violence. And when some Black women asked for help from the organizations that had been dedicated to suffrage for decades, They were flatly turned away. So you're going to go to these suffrage organizations and you're going to say, great, you know, I'm glad
4: we got that obstacle removed, sex, but what about these three other ones I'm facing? Here again is Lisa Tatro, the author of The Myth of Seneca Falls. And those are white organizations, those mainstream white organizations, Carrie Chapman Katz, NASA, and Alice Paul's National Women's Party are going to say, I'm sorry, but our fight is over. We can't help you. That's a race issue. That's not a gender issue. And so those organizations turn their back on the millions and millions and millions of women who are still facing restrictions at the state level. And those women will continue to organize for suffrage after 1920. And for many of those women, they won't get a decisive victory until 1970. with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which will finally strike down those restrictions and allow them
0: to register. And for Tatro and so many women and men who have dedicated their lives to suffrage history, it would be a mistake to think the story ends in 1920. That would be to ignore the women who were left behind that year,
1: who fought for equality but never got to enjoy it. Which is why our centennial commemoration has to be more than a celebration, according to our experts. It has to be a commitment to keeping the history alive and a commitment to democracy. First, Alison Parker.
3: It has to be a recognition of the fact that voting rights are always something that are hard fought for and You can never assume that winning on a kind of superficial level is enough. You have to fight to enforce those laws and those constitutional amendments. And if you don't have a unified front, it's going to be much harder to do. So for people who are racial minorities, if they don't have support from that white majority, they're going to have a very hard time celebrating. And Martha Jones. For me, the best thing that can come out of this anniversary year is a deepened understanding of how precious, how fought for, how essential voting rights are and have been for a very long time in this country. I think the struggle around the 19th Amendment help us appreciate the ways in which arbitrary ideas about human difference, racism and sexism, have interfered with our arrival at some sort of more complete democracy. Elaine Weiss.
0: I think it's a great opportunity for us to recognize what an extraordinary social and political movement this was and something that we're not taught very much, that we have not been well-versed in, that's been kind of dismissed. Like, oh yeah, it was just the women that got the vote. This was an amazing civil rights battle. And that's what it was. It was
4: a civil rights battle. And Lisa Tetra? To me, it gives us an opportunity to talk about what it means to vote in this country. And we try to understand what the suffrage movement accomplished and what it didn't accomplish. And in many ways, if we just take a triumphal approach to this, we think the story's over and it's just about remembering and not about calling us to action in the present. When in fact, to me, what the 19th Amendment didn't accomplish was securing any right to vote for any citizen. And if we tell the story about there being a right to vote that somehow people are invested with, we think that if people don't have access to the vote, they must have done something to abridge their right. And in fact, that's not true. And This centennial gives us an opportunity to revisit the health of our democracy and ask ourselves, what have we won and what do we still need to fight for?
1: For starters, women, their rights, and
4: and nothing nothing less. less.
1: So the fight continues on. I think it's wonderful to be able to recognize some of the heroines and heroes throughout history that have made it in some ways a lot easier and others obviously harder to continue to reach for that progress that we're still aiming for these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was a long time. <laughs> I mean, the fight, not the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can
1: definitely do this a lot longer.
0: I do appreciate the perseverance. Their hearts were in a good place, even though they weren't necessarily always for everybody. And like you said, we're still working towards that true equality for all at the polls. And
1: I, for one, am here for it. (laughs) This all is still very sort of living and breathing history unfolding before us. And there's a lot of opportunity for the light to be spread among all of us to keep illuminating the path that I believe is righteous and and ours to be had, but it will clearly not be given to us. And it's time for us to seize our day. I'm Rosario Dawson.
0: And I'm Retta. Thanks for listening. This was, and nothing less, from the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, the National Park Service, and PRX. This podcast was envisioned by WSCC Executive Director, Anna Lehman, with support from Kelsey Millay. The production team is executive producer, Genevieve Sponsler, producer and audio engineer, Samantha Gatzik, and writer and producer, Robin Lynn. Original score by Erica Wong, with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The historical content used to create these stories was brought to you by the National Park Service. Teachers can download companion lesson plans at gonpsgovernor slash suffrage podcast. For even more suffrage history, visit the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission at womensvote100.org.
1: Raisman, and I'm the host of a new podcast for the whole family called The Magic Sash. Join me, Lottie, and Isaiah on a time-traveling adventure to learn about the fight for women's right to vote. It's a story about people demanding their voices be heard. Listen to The Magic Sash wherever you find your podcasts.